Amazing Grace Kona welcomes you to today's lesson from Pastor Izzy Manzo. Our prayer is that today's lesson will spiritually feed and uplift you. Now, here's Pastor Izzy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul will say in verse 17, Therefore come out from their midst and be ye separate, says the Lord of hosts. Don't touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Now, Paul is a master of the Old Testament. He was, by title, a Pharisee of Pharisees. You had to have the entire scroll of Isaiah memorized. But it doesn't surprise me that he's quoting from Isaiah right here. Because to a church, this would be like what could be to any church today in this world. We're surrounded by things of the world and the corruptions of the world. But Paul would say, just because you're surrounded by that stuff, doesn't mean you need to let that stuff get into your life. You're called to be separated from that stuff. You're in the world, but not of the world. You guys understand that, right? Paul is using an example that I love. It's easy to share, but how easy is it to live? I mean, talking real practical, day-to-day, rubber meets the road, walking out your faith. How subtle is it that the world tries to get into the Christian's lives? To creep into our lives, into our hearts, just slipping in little bits of worldliness here and there and It tries to taint us and corrupt us. Satan doesn't have to slide slam you with a whole wall of darkness. All he's got to do is slip in a little bit. Just feed a little bit of poison and a little bit more poison, a little bit more poison to your spirit. And eventually what's going to happen? Get enough of it, it kills you. He doesn't have to go, here, drink this whole glass. Just keep sipping this. Enough will build up and pretty soon it'll hit toxicity and you're gone. And that's what he wants to do. He doesn't want you to hear this message. Be holy. Be separated for God. Be set apart as a person set apart for a special use of God. This is what Paul is coming to, to this Corinthian church. You guys are in this worldly setting, but you've got to be a light in the darkness. You've got to be separated. He says it in another passage. It doesn't mean you stay away from all the people in the world because to be separated in this sense He said, you have to go away from everybody. I mean, we're all surrounded by worldly people. But what he's talking about is an inwardness. You know in your heart, when you are participating with your heart in things of the world versus you are saying no to those things. It could be any particular worldly note. We got so many poisons when it comes to the things of the world to corrupt us, right? John wrote in 1 John, lust of the eyes, lusts of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Don't you help me with that? I could do it all myself. The reality is is that any one of these things can be in our heart, and we don't realize it. Those things are not from above. They're from below. The things that the enemy wants to suck us into, and he wants to cause our walk to be stumbled. He wants to trip us up. So an easy way to trip us up is just to get us to compromise a little bit in one area. And that one compromise will lead to... Another time when I say, well, you already compromised over there. Why don't you compromise in this? And oh, you've compromised there and there. So now it's a progression. Go ahead. And it literally becomes easier and easier to compromise if you do so. Because Paul says you sear your conscience. You become seared. You actually burn that part that was made to be sensitive to God. Now he's telling them, I call this the real applicable stuff. Starting at verse 14, would you look with me? He says, do not be bound together with an unbeliever. Or if you have a King James, do not be unequally yoked. For what partnership have righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? 
Now, what does Paul say? Verse 14, here of 2 Corinthians 6. What fellowship does an unbeliever have with a believer? None. Paul would say, don't do it. Don't be yoked. Now, yoke was to be joined, partnered together with the purpose of doing work. It's very hard to put together an unbeliever with a believer. You can think of this in business. Think of partnerships where the believer and the unbeliever have been put together under contract, and all of a sudden there's a big schism. They can't get the corporate business to go down the same trail. It's just a constant tug of war. And I want to use the example, actually, what the root word comes from. The word for yoking comes from the joining together of a pair of oxen. Yoke was the piece of wood that shaped like the McDonald's arches that they put over the humps of the ox's shoulders. And it had the ring in the middle and the rings for the reins that you pull. And you steer the oxen, you hook the plow to that big heavy piece of wood to tow the plow through the earth. When it said, don't be yoked together unequally, there was a reason. If you think of it in farming sense, it actually makes a lot of sense. If you took a really big oxen and a little baby oxen, now there was only this exception that was made when the baby was being trained to get used to the yoke. They used to put it next to a mature oxen to let it know the standard issue get used to this because the baby would not go along at first but put it next to a big one tie them both together and baby has to get drug along with the big one so it finally gets used to the commands and starts going but what would happen if you left the baby and the big one as a pair to do work how well would this work out this is only for training the baby and actually it didn't make for very good work if the mature one pushes with its might and the baby could be pushing all at once with its might but it doesn't have as much might how do you think steering a straight line on that plow is going to feel? It's going to be like doing circles, bloaties. The big one's going to push harder than the little one ever can, and it'll always curve to the side. When the big one is pushing on, it's going to make you curve that direction because the little one can't keep up. So after the week of training, they would take that baby ox, and they'd find another baby ox the same size. They would put a yoke on them together. And now, even though... You kind of consider this like the John Deere baby tractor versus the really big D9, D10 tractor. This is small version because you got two baby oxen versus the two big ox. But the principle is that these two will grow up together. And they'll put the same amount of force. They'll get tired about the same amount of time. And they'll be able to at least do small chores in a straight line. They'll be easy to steer and press forward on the yoke. Now... This is the very word he uses from the Greek. I just want you to know the root of it. He says, don't join yourself, don't be yoked to an unbeliever. Now think about this. You got a live ox, live unto God, born again, and a dead ox, spiritually dead. We're going to hook them together and do some plowing now. How good is this going to be? Live ox going in circles around dead ox. You're going to like literally plow a circle. Because you can't take that dead ox and, what, are you going to drag it along? How tired will that ox get if it's just dragging the dead one along? By the way, in relationships, there are some of you that have done this. You have yoked yourself to an unbeliever, and it's like you're dragging a dead body along, and you're wondering, why am I so tired? Well, you joined yourself, you yoked yourself, you bound yourself together with someone who wasn't spiritually alive. And it's just like that example. When I think of the example where it comes from, now it makes a lot of sense. 
You don't want to be joined to a dead ox. That would be foolish. Nor do you, as a believer, want to be joined to someone who is spiritually dead. That's the same idea. You just be spinning circles around them or trying to drag them along through life. And it's not living. You can't get anything done. This happens, though, more than I care to say. And it's probably one of the biggest frustrations for pastors. We have to spend so much time counseling people who've already yoked themselves. They don't come to us before the yoke. They go get yoked and then come in and go, This ain't working. I'm so tired of dragging the dead weight around. This person's just a big weight around my neck. I'm like, you're the one that joined yourself. Now, you may have done this already. And if you have, the best thing I can tell you to do is start praying for that dead one to come to life. Remember the man who had the prodigal son and the son took all his stuff and went off and lived in worldliness and wanton living. And then he finally one day looked down at the pig slop. He was serving to some hogs and he said, you know, my father's servants have it better than this. I'm going to go back home. Tell my father, I'm sorry. I'm not even deserving to be called his son, but can I come back and work for you? And when the father saw the son coming from afar, his prodigal boy, he ran to meet him. He said, put a robe on him and kill the fatted calf and let's have a party. This son of mine that was dead is now alive. He welcomed him back into his kingdom. You're back home, son. Just like God does to us when we come back to him. And we could be walking in death and we could be blowing it. And God says, just come back to me. Come back. I want you to be alive. If you're yoked to somebody who's not alive, start praying that they would be. And oh yes, you're going to hear the objections of, yeah, but you Christians are so narrow-minded. There's only one way with you guys. If you didn't know this, in 1 Corinthians 6 when he said, and I was the God that heard your prayers and I listened to you. In the beginning of this chapter, he says, at the acceptable time, and I heard you. On the day of salvation, he says, I helped you. And behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Does anyone know where that verse came from? Isaiah. Isaiah 49. This guy, Paul, he had to do it for his final exam. He knew the book of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 50. Paul is quoting, he's going to continue to quote, that part where he says, come out from amongst them, be separate. That's Isaiah 52. Basically, he's quoting the passage that starts in 49 and goes all the way to the end of 53. Why don't you turn to Isaiah 52 and 53? Paul said in verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temples of the living God. I will dwell amongst them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Exodus 29:45. he just quoted. And then he went on and said, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord of hosts. I love this. Second Samuel seven fourteen. If you're not familiar with the scripture, he's literally quoting back-to-back verses. But let me show you the passage he's pulled. Most of this first part of Corinthians from started in Isaiah 49 and really ramps up just after the beginning of 52. So Isaiah 52, verse 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. And therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am, like the Lord answering. You want me? Here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, 
announcing salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up your voices. They shout joyfully together, for they see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth and shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of the nations, and all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. He's going to bear his arms and let them see his salvation. You say, well, what's that about? Well, just keep reading. You know, sometimes the best way to find out an answer to a biblical question is don't stop. Just read further in the text, because usually the answers lie right on the next couple verses or the next page. Look at this. Depart, go out from there, and touch nothing unclean. Get out of the midst of her and purify yourselves. You who carry vessels of the Lord, but you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you. The Lord, the God of Israel, will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what they had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, out of a root that is out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised. He was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we didn't esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being, our peace, fell upon him. And by his scourging, or his stripes, we're healed. Who's he talking about, Isaiah, here? Jesus. Now, the Pharisees actually teach that this passage I'm reading to you is too difficult to understand. It's forbidden. This is the forbidden passage in Jewish culture. They say we can't possibly conceive who he's talking about. And they even argue, is this Isaiah spiritually talking about himself? Well, Isaiah wasn't pierced through for his transgression, crushed for our iniquities. He wasn't bearing our griefs upon himself. In fact, if you want to read on, well, let me show you. This is a description of Jesus and going to the crucifixion and the torture that they put him through. And I know Isaiah doesn't die in this manner, what's described here. Isaiah was stuffed into a hollow log by this horrific son of Hezekiah, a guy named Manassas, who hated Isaiah for preaching the truth, shoved him in a hollow log and had him sawn in two, starting between his ankles and sawing the log this way, upward. That's how Isaiah perished. This is not about Isaiah. I just only tell you that gross detail because sometimes someone will throw up at you. Well, maybe Isaiah is writing prophetically about his death upcoming. No, he's writing about the Messiah's death. I'll show you. He says, by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way. 
And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Remember Jesus when they were doing all the accusations and they were scourging him and saying, confess a crime and whipping him. And did he open his mouth? Not a word. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Now his grave was assigned with wicked men, and with a rich man he was in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there yet any deceit found in his mouth. Remember how he hung between those two thieves? Remember how Joseph said, here, use my garden tomb. No one's ever laid any. It's actually the rich man getting the tomb ready for himself. But he goes, you can use it for the Messiah. Now, he didn't know it was only a three-day loaner. It was a great offer, but Jesus wasn't going to keep it. And by the way, Joseph didn't use it after that. It's empty to this day. They made a wooden door. The stone that was rolled over is actually to the side. It's cracked. And it's to the side. If you go to the garden tomb in Israel, you'll see this. And they put the verse from Mark that says, He is not here. He is risen. Right on the inside of the wood door. They close it at night and lock it because they have trouble with vandalism now. The Garden Institute, this group that kind of maintains the gardens there for visitors to come and see the place where Jesus was laid to rest. They made a wooden door that they closed late at night and then they come early in the morning they open it. But when no one's there, they actually lock it shut just so no one will vandalize it. But when you open that door, right on a plaque is Mark's Gospel saying, He's not here. And Joseph didn't use the tomb. It has stayed empty to this day. It's a testimony. It's so weird. As Christians, we go halfway around the world here from Hawaii to Israel on a, a tour of the Holy Land, and we go to an empty tomb. Some people, they make a pilgrimage to find their face leader, you know, and the guy's in the ground right there, and they worship at his tomb, and he's still in the ground. We go all the way there, and there's nobody in the tomb. And that's the best part, right? He's risen. So this Isaiah wrote all this 700 years before this happens. Isaiah is prophesying how the Messiah will come and that he will die. And here, listen to this. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And he would render himself as a guilt offering. He would see his offspring. He would prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and he interceded for the transgressors. That's what Jesus did. He interceded. He prayed on our behalf. When they were punishing him, he's going, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I just came to do this to pay for their sins. Even the guy, the, the centurion who stood at the foot of the cross when he watched Jesus die, he said, this man was guiltless. He could tell. He had seen many guilty men die. And he went, surely this was the Son of God. Just in watching the way he died. Not hurling abuses, not swearing, not doing. He just kept his mouth shut and went to the cross for us. What a great thing he did. Paul had to write this all out, every verse, to get his Pharisee of Pharisee title. And now he's writing to the church at Corinth, and what's he start quoting from? This passage. 
the passage that talks about how Christ saved us, and he says, when we called on him in the day of salvation, he helped us. And now he says, don't you know your body's a temple for the Holy Spirit? Come out. Be separated from the world. Don't let the world in you. You're made to be the boat in the water, not the water in your boat. You're made to be in this world, but not of this world. Come out and be separate. And listen to what he says he'll do. And if you do this, I will welcome you. You know, sometimes people say, I feel like God's so far from me. I always urge him right away, are you dabbling in sin? If you feel like he's far from you. I found that there's a spiritual giveaway. Sometimes they're dabbling in a little sin. They got a little bit of that worldly stuff getting into their heart. And they feel like, God, you're really far from me. Well, yeah, he's far because what fellowship does light have with darkness? He's light. God is light. You go playing with darkness, and what fellowship are you going to have? You're ruining your fellowship with God. Don't do it. Get the water out of your boat. Turn on your bilge pump. Pump that garbage out. Clean your heart up. It says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Pump that junk out. Don't let the world get in you. You really want to shine for the Lord? Do what it says. Come out and be separated. And you only you know in your heart if you're cleaning out the junk. Let your heart be clean and pure before the Lord because what does he say? And I will welcome you. Don't touch the things that are unclean. And God says, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. How many want to feel like that? God is your father. You're his child. I mean, we are wired for that. We are hardwired to want to have that. That intimacy, God designed us for that. But, you know, a lot of Christians are compromising and they don't feel that. They don't feel that closeness. They're like, I don't even know what you're talking about, Pastor. And my heart grieves. You don't understand. I read this and it still reminds me to keep that bilge pump cleaning out my boat. Don't let the world creep in on any level. It's funny, I've read this a few times. Every single time I feel like the Lord goes, so you're going to flip the pump on again? Because, you know, when you're in a boat, how a little bit of splash gets over the gunnel and a little bit works its way down and you're cleaning the one fish and a little bit of blood goes down and it trickles down and all that stuff gets down to that bottom, that bottom deep well. Now, you can leave it in there, but I got news. If you've ever had to clean out a bilge pump, that is one stinky rank job. And it's because all that grody stuff works its way down in the boat and all the stuff on the deck gets washed and trickles down into that deep part of the boat. And if you don't clean it out, it can get so bad the bilge pump will freeze up. It gets so much garbage, you just can't pump it out. You do not want to be like that as a Christian. You want your bilge pump being flipped on regularly, cleaning out the gunnel. You want that stuff pumped out. Should we do that spiritually for our beings in this world? Should we pump out the garbage out of our heart and wash it down and be clean? Like David said, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. What a better time than to pray, Lord, make a clean heart in me. Really, this is important. And I can't think of a more important message. Some people interjected this week about, well, you Christians are all about one way. You narrow-minded guys. And I was pondering that last night because I was thinking about this Isaiah passage. It's all about how God's salvation is through this one guy who, through his stripes we are healed, through his sacrifice we're redeemed all the same i'm thinking about it and thinking that's jesus john 14 says i am the way the truth the life no one gets the father except through me 
In John 10, 1, he says, if you want to get into the sheepfold by any other way except the door, and Jesus said, I'm the door to the sheepfold. You want to get in, you got to go through the door. If you try to climb over, you're a thief and a robber, right? And I'm thinking about what Mike Ketzler said about how Jesus gave the parable about the world and the field, and the guy goes in the field and he sees a treasure. And it's so precious. So he goes and sells all he has so he can buy the field so he can get the treasure. Who remembers what Mike said the treasure was? Us. We're the treasure. God so loved the world, he sold all he had to buy the world so he could have the treasure. Now think about this. When you take something precious, I mean valuable, on this earth, and we want to store it for safekeeping, what do we do with it? We get some safe, some vault. How many doors do we put on those vaults? One. Why one? Why do the designers only put one door? You don't want multiple places of entry. You try to come in any other way. You're a thief and a robber. You try to break in the vault. There's only one way to go in, and that's through the door of the vault. God made a door into heaven, and he puts the most valuable things there, his treasure, which happened to be us. And he says, you want to get in? I got one door. These people, they get all mad. God, you Christians are so narrow-minded, only one way in. You know what we forget to answer? We're talking about something really precious here. How valuable is everlasting life, eternal life? You talk about something, the most precious thing there ever was, and God says, I'm only making one door to get to it. Because it's that precious. we got to quit treating it like it's not precious and tell them, it's precious. Of course there's only one way in. You ever heard of a vault designer making a vault with multiple doors? We only put one door. God put one door into heaven, that's his son. You want to get in? Go through the door. Why? Because there's precious things inside. Amazing Grace Kona thanks you for listening to today's lesson. You can listen to today's lesson or any of the radio lessons on iTunes titled Celebrate the Lord or at our podcast site, CelebrateTheLord.org. And if your travels take you to Kailua Kona on the Big Island of Hawaii, come visit us. We meet Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on the beach at the north end of the old Kona Airport. For more information on Amazing Grace Kona, go to our church website at AmazingGraceKona.com. Amazing Grace Kona is the original Calvary Chapel Kona.